Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Friends, we continue now uh, with the reading that we began last week as we read Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a few moments of silent reflection. Gracious God, as we come to this passage, we come with scattered lives and many thoughts. We come with our cultural blind spots. We come with our societal need to get it now for quick fixes, for a sense of entitlement that we deserve our best life now and So when things go wrong, we get frustrated and confused. And here comes this passage that we just heard. The Apostle Paul, with great connection to you, talking about the frustrations of life. The insurmountable difficulties of this existence. Help us to see, Jesus Christ, right now, that you identify with us in all our suffering and need. You see us in all the ways we have it together, the things we're proud of about ourselves, the image we present to this world, and you see far deeper than that. You see our failures. You see our fears. 
you see all the dysfunctional ways that we deal with difficulty to do damage to ourselves and to others. You see us in all our complexity and contradictions and you know us and you love us. Your response is to give yourself to us in the sacrificial work of your son, Jesus Christ, in his cross and resurrection. And so now, it's in his name and by the power of your spirit that we invite you to do something for us we could never do for ourselves. Break through, break off the rust and the care and the concern, break through the static and the confusion with your truth, with your love, with your voice that says nothing will separate us from the love of God. Help us to see that, to receive that, to trust it, and to live according to it. In your name, amen. Well, it was January 1st, 2015, and it was a beautiful day on New Year's Day. Our family was living in San Francisco, and on that day we decided to hike up to the top of Twin Peaks, which in many ways is San Francisco's version of Mount Soledad, where there's a beautiful view and you can look over the city, and we thought we would watch the first sunset of the new year from this gorgeous, gorgeous vantage point. It was also Florence's and my 10th wedding anniversary, and so I had gone back to the place where I had bought her engagement ring and her wedding ring, and I had them not only shined up and cleaned up, but refashioned, and uh, part of it added to even more diamonds and more brilliance and more beauty. I had saved up for this moment. And so here we are on the top of this mountain overlooking the city. It's the golden hour. It's beautiful. Our kids are there with us. And my heart is pounding because I'm about to give her this ring and recommit my life to her and tell her how much I love her and how much she means to me. And as I'm about to get down and give her this ring, our son Levi, who at the time was five years old, starts tugging on my arm. And he says, Daddy, I have to go to the bathroom right now. And I said, Levi, can it wait? He said, it can't. It's a number two. (laughs) And here we are on this hill with no restroom in sight. And as a dutiful father, I took him. We found some bushes. Sorry about that conservancy of San Francisco. And we did what we had to do. But it's this great picture of so much beauty and romance and heart pounding and connection. And then just real life crashing in and hitting it and intersecting. Beauty and brokenness. Things going the way that I hoped they would go, and then wild turns coming from the side. If if I Instagrammed that moment, it would be hashtag moment ruined. Now, maybe you can relate, because that's a picture of real life. I mean, right now, we are dealing with the beauty and the brokenness of this world. That is a funny story, but for real life, everyday life that you and I live, you know it goes much, much deeper than that. We have a life in which there's wonder and beauty and hope. Yesterday, my family went down to La Jolla Cove and went snorkeling. We can do on a lunch break what other people save up all year to do on a vacation. We traffic in beauty all the time. And we traffic in frustration, in plans that we make in hopes that we have, getting blindsided and knocked right off the rails. What's up with that? It can become tragic. It can become sad. It can become unraveling when a love relationship that you have goes tragically wrong. 
when you're looking for purpose and meaning in your life and you find that the things that were seemingly giving you that purpose and meaning have been ripped away from you and now you have a sort of existential vertigo because you don't know which way is up. We're in this pandemic where we can't even make plans for next month, let alone for next year where the economy is in a tailspin, and then it comes up, and then it comes down, and so your retirement is at risk. I got my hair cut this week, you might have noticed. I got my money's worth, and I made the joke to my barber who lives in this neighborhood. She's been here for 30 years. On her walls are historic photographs of North Park. And I joked with her, please give me a very close haircut because I don't know when I'll be able to come back. And she said, well, I need to give you a close haircut because I don't know how long I'm going to be in business. Someone who's devoted her professional career to caring for the neighbors of this neighborhood through her craft. And she cannot count on her barbershop staying open through this pandemic. Many of you are concerned about your particular health or the health of a loved one. We continue to work and march and pray for social justice, for racial justice and equality. And right now, there's violence in the streets of Portland, of Seattle. Federal troops are moving into other cities like Albuquerque and Detroit. And so we're seeing violence and threats of violence increase and increase. Beauty and brokenness. Frustration and uncertainty. See, Scripture presents this as an honest description of what it's like to live life between two major mile markers. On one hand, the new creation of God to restore all things has begun in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In his death on the cross, he's taking the pain and the brokenness of this world and putting to death, death itself. And in his resurrection, he's showing that the new creation has been birthed in the midst of the old and there is hope and new creation and beauty. And the other mile marker has not happened yet, when Jesus will return to restore all things, where every tear will be wiped from every eye, every injustice will be done done right and made right, where death itself will be no more. And so we live in between these two mile markers, in the overlap and the interlock of the brokenness of this world and the beauty of the new creation. As some theologians describe it, it's the already nature of the new creation and the not yet nature of it not yet fully being here. And so there are moments where we advance and we rejoice and we come together and we celebrate and there are moments that we get knocked down and discouraged and distracted and we wander. There is turmoil that goes on in the world toward us from the outside and there is turmoil that goes on in our own hearts that knocks us down from the inside question is, what do you do with all of that difficulty? I mean, there are many responses we can take. How do you deal with the difficulty in your life in this world right now? Do you let it run you down, overwhelm you, make you despair, make you cynical? Maybe you're just in in shutdown mode right now. Or do you minimize it? Do you pretend like it's not that big of a deal yeah. So you go on, and there's plenty to distract ourselves with in San Diego. As my barber used to say, San Diego is the land of the eternal happy hour with plenty of distractions. Are you minimizing it? Maybe you're medicating yourself with over, overworking, overeating, overdrinking, over shopping, over anything. 
So that as long as you're filling your senses, you don't have to deal with the malaise or the boredom or the difficulty of this world. And the Apostle Paul, who writes this letter, says there's actually another way to go through this. You can go through this season with tears and with hope at the same time. Confronting this world head on with all its beauty and tragedy and having a hope that makes you buoyant, that is not rooted in a blind faith or a myth or a superstition or the opiate of the masses, that is actually rooted in a God who is more present to you than the air you breathe. So let's unpack that and look at this this morning. As we see a promise, a definition, and a guarantee. Okay? We see a promise that our bad things will turn out for good. But then we see a definition that actually defines our good is more than our mere circumstances. And then we have a guarantee that our good is guaranteed. First, the promise. Our bad things will turn out for good. Did you hear that in verse 28? We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Now, often this finds its way into Christian greeting cards and bumper stickers and slogans, and it's not to be taken alone out of context with the rest of the passage. So this is not saying, if you love God enough, or trust God enough, or convince yourself that you have enough faith, then God is going to make everything work right now exactly the way that you want things to work. It is not saying that if you say the right words or you pray enough, that you will have your version of your best life now. And if you plot it on a chart, it will just be upward and to the right. That's not what it's saying. Because Paul is saying, God will work all things for your good. Do you know what's embedded in that statement? Is that all things will happen even to Christians who place their faith and trust in God. Terrible things will happen to people who love God. See, Scripture presents a much more nuanced, complex, real vision of this world. It's not like, you know, this, these people have all good things happen to them and these people have all bad things happen to them. This world is beautiful and broken. Beautiful and wonderful and terrible things will happen to all of us. See verse 35 for the actual context. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Did you hear that? Distress coming from within. Persecution coming from without. Nakedness meaning you don't have enough resources to take care of your needs. The sword. There is violence in this world. He goes on. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. So when he says all things will work for the good of those who place their faith and trust in God, he means all things. And he's not speaking from his vacation resort in Fiji. He is speaking in a context where he is experiencing these very things. See, the context in which this passage was written, Paul is about to be on his way to Rome to deliver a a financial offering that has been collected from other churches to deliver to the poor and the needy right in the urban center of the Roman Empire. 
And he knows when he arrives that there's going to be a group of the religious establishment who will want to kill him because he is a Jewish rabbi who has seen Jesus as the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures and worships Jesus as the Messiah. To them, he's a traitor. They will want to kill him for religious reasons. This is as he goes to Jerusalem. After that, he will go to Rome, which I mentioned is the center of the Roman Empire. And they will want to kill him there for a different reason. But they'll want to kill him equally dead. They will want to kill him for political reasons because he says Caesar is not actually God. Jesus is truly God. Caesar is not the one who decides the fate of the Roman Empire. Jesus actually is. You see, that's a whole other sermon. But Christianity is a very political faith because it says there is a true ruler of this world to whom all rulers must give account one day. And they will want to kill him for that. See, he knows that he is facing tough times, and he has in the past. This scripture is honest. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Now, that is hard for our particular ears to hear. In a post-enlightenment, individualistic, upwardly mobile, American dream-bathed society. See, we would rather say, If things go wrong, I'm going to sue. (laughs) If things go wrong, they're broken and they're not working. And the, the, the assumption there is, I deserve for things to go right. You know, this happens all the time. You get a new car and you show it off and at least one friend is going to say, you deserve it. What does that even mean? You go on a great vacation and you show your friends, oh, you deserve it. Friends, I don't know what to say when people say you deserve it. That's an assumption that we just carry with us. You deserve it. And so what happens then is our relationships and the key components of our life become consumeristic things that we just trade up for. We discard our career when it no longer serves us. We discard spouses. We discard churches when they no longer make us happy. We throw away relationships when they don't fulfill our needs because we think we deserve it. And so we trade them in. It's this currency of entitlement, this belief that I deserve it. And it drives all sorts of crazy and compulsive behavior in our lives. So this is not saying if you just unite with Jesus, become a Christian, pray enough and trust him, he'll give you everything you think you deserve. It's not saying that. Here's what it is saying. Though bad things happen in your life and in this world, God will work them together for good. This is not saying God will give you better circumstances now according to what you think you deserve. It is saying that even the things that are bad, God will use and work together for your good. But first, it's very honest. It calls bad things bad. It calls evil things evil. There's a place in the scriptures where Jesus arrives at the grave of his friend Lazarus. Lazarus has just passed away. Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary, are there. And they say to Jesus, if you were just here, this would have never happened. And Jesus, in the scene, knows that he will raise Lazarus from the dead and show that he has power even over death itself. But first, he goes to the grave and he weeps. 
and he yells and he rages and he roars against the vandalism that is death because death does not belong. Do you see that? He doesn't say, don't worry, death's no big deal. He doesn't say, watch the fireworks I'm about to do. He doesn't minimize it. He doesn't show off. He enters into the pain. And he takes the broken fibers of that pain and weaves them together into a new, beautiful tapestry. The promise is that God will take the bad things and will work them for good in the totality of all your life and the whole of everything. I heard a story, we'll see if I can remember it. It's not in the notes, but it's coming to me now. Of this, uh, It was in the village vanguard, in, in the village in New York City. And Wynton Marsalis was there playing music one night for a very small crowd. Wynton Marsalis, one of the jazz greats, is sitting playing for an audience that is completely enraptured, hanging on every note. And just as he gets to the conclusion of this beautiful song. The lyrics would have gone something like, I don't stand a ghost of a chance. Before he could get to the notes that would be with you, someone's cell phone goes off in the audience. It's the old Nokia cell phone. Diddling, ding, 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 ding. Diddling, ding, 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 ding. And the writer for the Village Vanguard who writes this article had written on their napkin at that moment, moment ruined. Wynton Marsalis stops playing. The audience, I'm sure, gave some pretty stinky looks to that particular person with their phone. And after they silenced it, Wynton Marsalis takes up his instrument and plays perfectly. Diddling, ding, 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 ding. Diddling, ding, 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 ding. And then he slows it down. Diddling, ding, 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 ding. And then he changes it just a little bit. And after repetition of repetition, he's perfectly woven it back. I don't stand a ghost of a chance with you. And the audience loses their mind at the brilliance of this master artist who can take an interruption that seemingly is moment ruined and incorporate it into a beautiful masterpiece to make something new that had never been heard before. Jesus is that great master artist who can take the moments that are ruined in your life and in mine. When you and I want to give up and check out and walk away, he is saying, wait and watch because I'm at work even now. This means that we don't say to him, you have one week to show me how all this will work for my good or I'm out. No, no, it's much bigger than just explaining a bad patch in your life or in mine. It means that it's impossible that all of this is meaningless. That he actually infuses meaning and value and care into every moment of your life even the ones you and I would much rather fast forward and get to the next chapter. You know, for those of you who have lived through pain, if you, if you live two or three decades, I hope I'm not offending anybody, at some point, if you live long enough, you're going to live through pain. And often it's the report of many people I speak with, and myself as well, where you can look back and say, hindsight is much clearer 
than your sight in the actual moment. Sometimes you begin to say, I thought I was alone then, but actually God was carrying me. Dostoevsky, in his book, The Brothers Karamazov, uh, for one of the, uh, the characters, Ivan, he writes, or he says in the book, I believe suffering will be healed and made up for. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. One day, this will all be worked out for good. How do we know that? Jesus would say, and I think Paul would say, look at the cross of Christ. You know, imagine for a moment, I'll speak for myself. I will imagine for a moment that I am there in the crowd on that first Good Friday when Jesus was crucified on the cross. And I'm in the crowd and I only know as much as everybody else knows at that moment. And so here I am watching the scene unfold, and all I know is that this good man who has been providing food for the hungry, who has been welcoming people in, he's turned outsiders into insiders. He's taught in a way that nobody has ever heard ever before. He's risen people from the dead, showing that he has some sort of supernatural power that we can't even wrap our minds around. And all I know now is that this good, wonderful, powerful teacher, rabbi, is being killed unjustly by the religious system and the political system of his time. Even on the cross, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I imagine myself in that crowd as the sun grows dark and refuses to shine and he breathes his last and he gives up his spirit. And I wonder what I'd think. I would have to be thinking, I'd imagine, that either God is not good or God is not powerful. God does not care. I could envision myself walking away from the cross that day, having my faith shaken to its core. And yet, on this side of the resurrection, we see that God was actually working out the renewal of the entire world, indeed of the entire cosmos, of you and me. What seemed like the greatest moment of God not showing up or not caring, God was actually showing up the greatest to renew all things, to put to death, even death itself. And three days later, in his resurrection, he shows that the final word on this world is not death and injustice and uncertainty and famine and fear, but it's new creation. It's new life being birthed in the midst of the old. I think this is what Paul is inviting you and me to tap into when he says there's a promise that our bad things will work out for good. He also gives a definition, though. Our good is far more than our mere circumstances in the moment. So this is not a a hallmark platitude, you know, a a band-aid on a hemorrhage that says, you know, they're there, you didn't get the job, don't worry, there are more coming. Or things didn't work out with your spouse, don't worry, there's a better one out there for you. Or things are going terribly for you right now, but there's a reason for all of this. No, 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 not at all. And by the way, I know that often uh, there are those of us who give that sort of advice and we are well-meaning. Anyone who's ever been through abject pain or loss will report those statements really don't help very much. Um, And that's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying something much better than that. 
He's saying that when bad things happen in your life, and he goes on to verse 29 and 30. God will work all things together for the good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, and, and bear with me, these are a lot of big words here. He, he lumps them together like a great necklace of pearls. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. See, God does not promise you a better set of more comfortable circumstances now. I'm sorry, I wish he did. I wish he promised that to me. But he promises a deeper, fuller, more truly human experience of what it means to live in this world with the fellowship of the God who created you and knits you together into his family along with brothers and sisters who walk with you. The point is, Jesus did not suffer so that you and I would never suffer. Jesus suffered so that when you and I suffer, we will become like him. It is through that that he actually creates the most beautiful and deep parts of us. This is like when you go to the, the uh, Zinfandel wine vineyards and they say, well, these are old growth Zinfandel vines. Why does that matter? Because that plant has been through seasons of drought. And when that plant goes through a season of drought, it survives by taking its roots and going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And through these seasons of drought, God will, if you allow him, Take the roots of your life and they will go deeper and deeper into him. I think this is what Charles Spurgeon, the old theologian, was getting at when he said, we cannot be established except by suffering. It is of no use our hoping that we shall be well-rooted if no March winds have passed over us. The young oak cannot be expected to strike its roots so deep as the old one. Those old gnarlings on the roots and those strange twistings of the branches all tell of many storms that have swept over that aged tree. But they are also indicators of the depths into which the roots have dived. If you are connected to him, his purpose to shape you into his image and his character will not be thwarted or frustrated, period. Everything that is happening to you is sculpting, is carving, is molding, is shaping you into what? Into the image of his son. See, Jesus is an image, not only of truly God, but of true humanity. What it looks like to be a fully flourishing human being. So the good is on one hand, a quality, a quality of becoming truly human. Jesus Christ himself says that God is moving us toward him. You are on a collision course with greatness, as one friend said. And as another friend said, when you look at the difficulties in your life and in this world, it doesn't mean that God is creating those things or making those things happen. But God is an opportunist. 
And he will use those very things as the mechanisms to make you more beautiful, more deep, more buoyant, more loving, more trusting. It also means that you have a new calling. A new calling to be a co-heir, to be a recipient of this new creation with Jesus. See, as we go about this world, created in the image and likeness of God, and yet being between those two mile markers, the already and the not yet, the beautiful and the broken, our image is distorted. It's fractured. It's why, try as you might, you don't always get it right. The things you don't want to do are the things you keep on doing. The things you do want to do are the things that you can't start doing. This is what Paul talks about at the beginning or the end of last chapter in Romans. Your image of God is true and real and scattered and fractured. And our calling is to reflect that renewed image more and more out into this world. Bringing to all creation the freedom, the healing, the life for which it longs. We are called to advance God's purposes in this world. Now, we don't have time to go into it for this particular sermon, but I do want to point out in that long string of words, that necklace of pearls that Paul assembles for us to gaze upon, he mentions this word predestined. For those whom he knew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And that word predestined is is used, I mean, entire denominations and movements of theology and churches are based on that word predestined. But for the sake of right now, the gift that I want to give you is that this word is not reduced to this personal question of, is it God's mysterious will versus human will? Does does God actually um, have his will or do humans have any sort of free will themselves? as if it's 100% one or the other. I think with much of that question, God is saying, yes, it's both and. (laughs) Uh, For example, in the Old Testament, God says, I will build my temple. And then it's architects and masons and artists who go and build the temple. Well, who built the temple, God or the people? The answer is yes. But at any rate, that's not what he's getting into here. The point is, God wills it, God calls it, and the people respond and participate in it. It's all in the realm of God's gracious will. So the point of that word in this passage is not who is called, but it's rather what is a Christian called to? And here it is. You are called to take on, to embody the image of Christ, to the restored humanity that you and I were created for, to be fully human. And then what does that look like? Oh, it looks like to be a part of this big family of God, to be loved and included. And then as you realize you're an insider in this family, you start looking for outsiders and make outsiders insiders by welcoming them in. It means you're justified. You are right with God. Justified would would have been a court term. The person was justified in court. They were vindicated. And he's saying there's no longer that self-criminating, self-incriminating voice telling you you don't deserve and you don't belong and you don't measure up and you're a failure. All of that's done away with. You are justified, not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done. You're brought into the family. You're justified. You're glorified. You are, you are magnified to show your infinite value and worth. 
You're called to live a Christ-shaped life, to receive all of that glory and to pour it out generously, joyously, sacrificially. Friends, that can happen in a boardroom, in a jail cell, in your apartment or your home, in your neighborhood. How are you called to live out that Christ-shaped life today? The vocation to live in his faithfulness. Now, he not only gives that promise that God will work all things for good, he defines the good as becoming more and more like him, more truly human, to be an agent of that goodness out in this world. And then he says, it's guaranteed. Nothing can stop it. Verse 31 through 39. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died. Yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you hear that? I think Paul used every word that was available to him to say, no, not that, no, not that, not the things outside of you, not the things inside of you. Sometimes theologians will, uh, you know, there's, sometimes you, you, have to, you have to write a book or you have to make a dissertation. They say as you approach your PhD, you know more and more about less and less until pretty soon you know everything about nothing at all. And there have been people who have tried to make arguments saying, well, maybe nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ, but you could separate yourself. Paul said, nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ. And last time I checked, you are part of creation. There is nothing. Just breathe that in for a second. If that's true, do you realize what that means? That even when you are in the most unstable situation of your life, even when you had the worst week of your life, when you look at the things you've done or the thoughts you've had, and you say, surely God would give up on me. I've given up on myself by this point. Hear him say, nothing separates you from the love of God in Christ. And my grammar friends, maybe you're paying attention here. This is why I think in verse 30, the word glorified is in past tense. Theologically, glorification is what happens to those who are united with Christ after we die in the resurrection. We are glorified with him, shown in true glory and beauty of what it means to be in the light of the resurrection, the presence of Christ. It is something that happens in the future. But Paul writes it in the past tense. What do you think is going on with there? I mean, most pastors would have said, he predestined you, he called you, he justified you, and he will glorify you one day. But Paul says, he's already glorified you. What's going on there? 
I think it's because it is such a sealed certainty that it is as if it has already happened. That is already your citizenship. That is already your identity. And so even now you are invited to own it, to live it, to trust it. You are bound to become as beautiful as Jesus, as meaningful and powerful as he is. I'll give you an example. And, uh, you know, San Diego, we don't have a uh, basketball team here. I'm a huge Warriors fan. My kids are rather spoiled growing up in San Francisco. Though I'm from San Diego, they only knew San Francisco sports teams for the first years of their life. And so they think it's really normal for their baseball team to win a championship. By the way, it's an even year, so maybe the Giants will get it. Padres are looking good. I digress. And, uh, you know, but it was pretty fun to watch the Warriors win and win and win and win and then win. And I remember this one time, it's halftime, and the Warriors are up by 20, as they do. And my son Benjamin, uh, I said to Benjamin, this game's over. And he goes, no, it's not. There's still two more quarters to play. I said, Benjamin, the Warriors never lose when they're up by 20. This game is over, even though there were still 24 minutes left to play. It was as good as over because of who they are. Now, it goes further. Later on, a couple weeks later, the Warriors are down by 20 points at the half. And Benjamin said, the game's over. The Warriors will lose. I said, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh. The Warriors never lose when they're down by 20 at half. They're still going to win. The game is sealed. We're going to be fine. And sure enough, we were. Now, that analogy breaks down because at some point the Warriors do lose. But I think what Paul is saying here is that your glorification with Jesus rests not on the things you do or the things that happen to you, neither in the past or today or in the future. Your connection to Christ, your identity as a beloved child of God, and your glorification in the future all depend on one thing, his incredibly great love for you that nothing in all creation can separate you from. And so it's over. It's done. It's already written. And so even now, you and I, can live with great hope as we face the difficulties of this world with our eyes wide open. Instead of minimizing them, instead of medicating away from them, instead of shutting down and letting them run us over, we can live with tears and with hope. With hope not only for ourselves, but for the world around us as we live into this great identity. So friends, where does it feel like right now the game is over for you? And here Paul remind you, nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ. You have a whole new stability available to you where you need not regret or fear the past because it has been dealt with in Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. You need not fear the future because whatever it may bring, he will be with you even working those things for your own good. And it is true that pain and frustration and disappointment are part of the fallen human experience. But there's a bigger picture. God is ever-present, ever-working for your own good, holding you even there. I want to leave you with what's said at the beginning of this passage. I just think it's striking as I read this, and Paul's talking about prayer. And I think this illustrates what we're talking about. He says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. 
For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God who searches the heart knows what's the mind of the Spirit. The Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And that's how we know that God works all these things for good as we put our faith and trust in him. Let's back that all the way up. God, or Paul is one of the chief apostles, one of the most influential church leaders in human history, someone who has had a personal face-to-face conversation with the risen Jesus Christ. And he's writing to a church of Christians, and he's saying, let's be honest, we don't really know how to pray. (laughs) We want to pray, but we don't know what to say. That's okay. God knows. God knows what you need even more than you do. At the top, he says, the Spirit intercedes for us. The Spirit intercedes, steps in, does an intervention. Hey, guys, don't worry, I got this. I'll take care of you. Later on, he says, Jesus intercedes for us. The Spirit and Jesus interceding to the Father on your and my behalf when we don't know what to do. The Trinity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit saying, when you are weak, that's okay. Because I'm never weak. When you're out to lunch or taking the day off, that's okay. Because I'm always at work. And when you're at the end of your rope and you feel like you're about to let go and fall off the edge into oblivion, even then, my hands are so big and so capable, they will hold you and never let you go. Because nothing in all creation will separate you from the love of God in Christ. Let's pray. Gracious God, as we hear these words, they are overlaid and speak into our actual lives with their texture and their experiences and their frustrations and their questions. And so help us to see that there is a promise that you are weaving all of these different threads into something beautiful. That you are actually weaving our lives with all their contradictions and two steps forward and one step backward. You are weaving our very lives into something beautiful. And that you are at work in this world, weaving it into something that more and more reflects your kingdom. Help us to receive great hope from that. Convince us of your great love even now. And send us out to be your hands and feet at work to bring good out of all these things. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.